This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. It's Friday. We have officially made it to the end of the week on phototherapy. <laughs> um, thank God this topic was interesting because otherwise it would have been even harder. But we made it. We made it. And and I think we're going to have to dedicate even a few more weeks to, um, you know, some of the other components of hyperbilirubinemia, right? Um, hemolytic disease, um, yeah. conjugated and then some of the other therapies. So we'll we'll touch on them briefly um, in some of the questions we have today. But um, we were really focused on phototherapy since it was kind of the highest yield for board study. So on Fridays, we always like to review kind of gaps in um, knowledge, gaps in our study, um, and then do some extra questions. So um, I guess the first further area of study is theoretically, I think some there's there's a uh, there's a space for someone to uh, redo that uh, phototherapy and PDA trial. So that's one thing. Um, the other thing probably most pertinent is that um, the use of IVIG is still being debated. Um, though in general, it's obviously still a mainstay of treatment per the 2004 AAP guidelines. Um, of note, a Cochrane review in 2018 showed an overall trend that favored IVIG in preventing exchange transfusion. However, the two studies that were felt to have the highest quality evidence showed no reduction. So mm -hmm. um, I think there's still study to be done. Um, some of the other things really follow up of babies discharge before 24 hours of life so that uh, people wanting to spend less and less time in the hospital, um, and that's not been well studied. Uh, more protocols for non-invasive screening and management, though, um, like we talked about earlier in the week, um, transcutaneous uh, bilirubin is reliable. Um, new therapies to prevent ABO incompatibility. So obviously we have um, Rogam for RH incompatibility, um, but obviously there um, is still an opportunity um, for helping manage babies with ABO incompatibility. Um, family perceptions of risk and presentation for care. Um, so there's uh, not a lot of studies, especially in the developed um, world, about um, what are families like perceptions um, and uh, understanding of hyperbilirubinemia, even though it's one of the most uh, common neonatal pathologies. Mm -hmm. um, Long-term studies of ELBWs who receive phototherapy. So we kind of touched on this um, a little bit yesterday on, um, for example, the PDA. And when we discussed the cancer risk, which right now we don't think there's an increased cancer risk, um, but that really wasn't studied in babies who uh, have the thinnest skin, our ELBWs, and it may have the longest exposure to phototherapy. So that's something to consider. Um, what is the follow-up for BIND or um, bilirubin-induced uh, neurologic dysfunction? Um, we don't really have a lot of good guidance for um, 
infants who um, may be affected. Uh, I, I, don't, I, don't think, I don't think we ever explained what bind is. I think if you're if you're not familiar, do you want to tell the audience what that's supposed to entail? Yeah. So um, bind is interesting if you really want the definition. I mean, it's a spectrum, right? So it's the spectrum leading of encephalopathy almost leading up to kernicterus. Um, so defining bind is actually, uh, I think, has not been well well done because it really is a spectrum. The way I understand bind is this idea that is there a threshold after which the bilirubin crosses the blood-brain barrier? And, right. And and the, the conceptual framework is that what? Are you saying that is there a number like like 20 and then below 20, no bilirubin gets through, but like you hit 20 and then suddenly the, the, the doors are open and people have been saying it's probably not an all or none response but maybe there's a like you said there's a spectrum also of like oh a little bit gets through and could that little bit that gets through even though it's not really leading to connectorist could that cause some neurological injury as well right Uh, yeah the other thought is that like everything else no two babies are the same um and are some babies different different than our risk factors say that we use with the nomograms um but at higher risk for bind or have a more permeable permeable blood-brain barrier than others. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are yeah. areas under investigation. The only other thing I wanted to mention is um, um, obviously there have been some newer nomograms, so that's something uh, to note in the last few years. Mm-hmm. And then uh, while we feel like we have uh, hyperbilirubinemia kind of figured out in the d- developed world, there's obviously still a, a real significant need for um, low-income solutions, low-cost solutions, since this is a still a significant health burden in low-to-middle-income countries. Um, and so while we feel like we don't um, see kernicterus um, very often. There's still places where it's um, very much still a real phenomenon. And, and that goes back to the one of the first few points you made, right? In the US, uh, us having the ability to monitor these babies for at least most of the time, 48 hours, uh, right. is a huge is a huge uh, leg up on making sure that we don't uh, miss these babies. And I think the cases of kernicterus, you can count on one hand on a yearly basis mm. in the US. It's there are very, very few. So... Yeah, that's what's at stake when we're talking. When you're talking about whether these babies can be discharged home uh, at 24 hours, if the follow up is not arranged carefully and the follow up of the bilirubin level is not arranged carefully, that's what really we're, we we may be putting back on the table. Yeah, and and again, we've got good access to when we're talking about um, you know the global impact of hyperbilirubinemia. We've got good access to phototherapy, but also our other things, you know, uh, IVIG and the opportunity to exchange transfusion, obviously yeah. that is um, significantly I mean, limited. Yeah. And I think what you mean by, places. right, what you mean by good access is that it's, it's the, the resources of our country are here, but access mm-hmm. sometimes for some patients is not optimal. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. okay. Should we do some questions? Let's go for it. Okay. Um, I really like this question and admittedly, 
it's because I've gotten it wrong so many times. So uh, neonatology board review uh, book, neurology question 23, a newborn presents with poor feeding, alternating irritability, lethargy, and a high-pitched cry. The infant's uh, indirect bilirubin concentration is 33, and is, he's found to have epistotonus and seizures as part of this infant's disease, which is least likely to occur. A, uh, athetoid cerebral palsy. B, auditory dysfunction. C, dental enamel dysplasia. D, paralysis of upward gaze. Or E, severe cognitive impairment. Yeah, like you, I remember this question vividly because it made me so mad to get it wrong. Um, because obviously this baby has signs of kernicterus. And so you think, all right, there's bilirubin in the brain. Severe cognitive impairment has to be one of the choices. Mm -hmm. I think if I remember correctly, when I did this question two years ago, I think I picked dental enamel dysplasia because mm -hmm. I, couldn't, I couldn't figure out what else. But uh, I now know that severe cognitive impairment is least likely to occur. And that all the other ones, atetoid cerebral palsy, auditory dysfunction, I kind of knew that. Dental enamel dysplasia at 9-0 is, is likely. Paralysis of the upward gaze is also something that I now know associates with kernicterus. Yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, you stole all my teaching points. Thank you. But Sorry. the infant in this vignette um, has severely <laughs> elevated, obviously, bilirubin concentrations and evidence of kernicterus. So um, we haven't talked about this yet. There are three phases of kernicterus, early, intermediate, and advanced. And in the early phase, infants are kind of sleepy, hypotonic, with, with poor suck and high-pitched cry. So often the first um, phase is missed in the clinical setting. Um, we also say, you know, babies with high bilirubins, even not at levels that cause kernicterus kind of are sleepy and poor feeders. So um, this is definitely kind of that, that first um, stage of concern. During the intermediate phase, infants are irritable, hypertonic with then uh, the appearance of, of epistotonus and have a shrill cry. And then progression of the disease into the advanced phase, and that's when infants have the irreversible neurologic damage, severe hypertonia, stupor, possible coma, seizures, and death. Um, so it is felt that in the first uh, you know, stages of kernicterus that if we act soon enough, um, that we can um, still prevent this severe um, third stage. Um, infants who uh, survive are at risk for the following. Movement abnormalities, um, so a whole array of tone abnormalities, um, anathetosis, um, a whole array of gaze abnormalities, but this paralysis of upward gaze is kind of um, almost pathognomonic. Mm -hmm. um, auditory dysfunction, so this is another um, reason that um, a baby might need a, a second hearing screen after prolonged, um, you know, phototherapy or high bilirubins, this dental enamel dysplasia, and then thankfully severe intellectual compromise is rare. Okay. Am I next? You're next. Okay, Daphna, neonatology review, uh, question 23. A, oh, no, not 23. I'm sorry. Uh, 25. Hematology and bilirubin mm -hmm. question 25. I apologize. After deciding that an infant born at 38 weeks gestation requires phototherapy, the pediatrician meets with the pediatric resident to review these the factors that can influence the efficacy of this phototherapy. Of the following, the factor that most likely limits the efficacy of phototherapy is choice A, a light source that has output in the blue-green spectrum. Choice B, a light source placed as close to the infant as possible to increase irradiance. 
Choice C, an extremely high concentration of total serum bilirubin. Choice D, hemolysis as a cause of the indirect hyperbilirubinemia. Choice E, maximal surface area exposed of an infant to phototherapy. So the question is, of the, fa- of the following, which of these factors most likely limits the efficacy of the phototherapy? Yes, we talked about most of these this week, but we did not talk about the effect of hemolysis as the, you know, the cause for indirect hyperbilirubinemia. So um, I guess you'll tell us more, but that's my answer. Yes, so you're absolutely right. So the the distance of the light source from the patient increases, increased irradiance leads to a greater decline in total serum bilirubin concentration. Um, and, and we talked about that yesterday in that, uh, in that study from Denmark where they actually just moved the light closer to the baby to increase the irradiance, and they saw this linear dose, this, this dose, dose response between phototherapy and uh, decrease in bilirubin. Um, like you said, the etiology of the indirect hyperbilirubinemia um, is very important, and it's less likely to be effective if jaundice is caused by hemolysis or if cholestasis is present. Um, and, that, and that kind of makes sense. Um, because if, as you're, it's, it's a bit of a net effect. If, as you're giving phototherapy, the baby is actively hemolyzing and making more bilirubin, then it's going to be less effective than the baby that doesn't have ongoing hemolysis and where you're converting, uh, your, your, um, you're converting your bilirubin to lumirubin, right? And, and, and you're, you're just basically Mm -hmm. getting rid of, of, uh, of the bilirubin this way. Um, Light source, the blue-green spectrum is the most effective in lowering the total serum bilirubin level. Light at this wavelength penetrates the skin well and is absorbed maximally by bilirubin. This has been described from way back when, and we know that this is about like 450 nanometer. The surface area of exposed skin is, is something that is important as well. The more area is exposed, the greater the rate of decline. And then the Total serum bilirubin concentration at the start of phototherapy uh, really makes a difference, meaning the higher the bilirubin when you start, the more rapid the decline will be in, uh, in uh, serum bilirubin with phototherapy. Good job. Thank you. But um, actually, this reminds me, I wanted to mention something kind of all week long. <laughs> we just haven't had the chance. Um, I hear a lot of people describe to parents that... Um, Phototherapy um, is like UV light, and ah. that's actually not correct. That's not correct. <laughs> um, so it's it's it works like sunlight, right? Because the earth, that's how we discovered, right? That um, that light helps with bilirubin is by leaving things in the sunlight. Um, but actually, I mean, the UV wave wavelength is ultraviolet, so it's in the purple wavelength, um, which is uh, smaller than the blue the blue light of 450 nanometers. So um, it's not UV light. Mm-hmm. Anyways, right. I've been meaning to mention. Okay. Um, we've got one more question. Hematology and bilirubin question 36. Uh, neonate with ABO incompatibility and hemolysis has rising indirect bilirubin levels despite despite fluid administration, phototherapy, um, and intravenous immunoglobulin or IVIG administration. The team prepares for a double volume exchange transfusion, and the neonatologist meets with the family. Of the following, the least likely risk 
the least likely risk associated with a double volume exchange transfusion is A, graft versus host disease, B, hypercalcemia, C, infection, D, necrotizing enterocolitis, or E, thrombosis. Yeah. Um, I think the, the way to answer this question is to have done an exchange transfusion. That's right. <laughs> because believe me, those little eye stats that you do every, what is it, every hour? What, what, is it every hour, Daphne? It's even more often. Depends how fast you do your transfusion. Right, right. Exchange, but yeah, but, uh, yeah, but, hour, really. But it's that, that calcium, right? You're supposed, it's not hypercalcemia. You're worried about hypocalcemia, whether you're going to have to replenish the calcium. So um, in, this, in this case, choice B was hyper and it's incorrect. It's hypocalcemia. That's right. That's right. So great test-taking strategy, right? You didn't need to know all of the other answer choices as long as you knew that it was – you didn't get tricked that it was uh, and, and, hypercalcemia and I, instead of hypercalcemia. And, right. And I think the key was the graft versus host because it's like, oh, like – I remember that from Himonk, obviously, but it's like, is there mm -hmm. such a thing? But there is, there is, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I actually had read about it, but it's, it could be tricky because we don't talk about that very much in the NICU, huh? Right, right. Yeah. And, and there, and we'll talk about this right now. The, the morbidity rate associated with a double volume exchange transfusion is actually really high. Um, in studies, ranges from seven to 25%. Honestly, I saw some other studies that were much higher. Um, and potential complications are um, multiple. The most common are hypocalcemia, like you said, almost like three quarters of exchange transfusions have hypocalcemia. Everyone that I've done had hypocalcemia. Um, and thrombocytopenia are the most common. So same thing, lots of um, anticipatory preparation for the potential need for platelet transfusion. And probably the third most common is metabolic acidosis. Also included are thrombosis, infection, um, and graft versus host disease. Um, so it has been described in neonatal transfusions. Um, rare complications include um, other electrolyte uh, abnormalities, hyponatremia and hypoglycemia, also neck um, and arrhythmia. The incidence of mortality associated with a double volume exchange transfusion is still low, um, but mortality rates um, uh, as much as 0.3%. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the most common are, um, again, neck and then arrhythmia causing or cardi uh, cardiovascular decompensation mm -hmm. leading to death. So they are not without risk. No shit. <laughs> Is that how we're ending the week? <laughs> uh, that's how anyway. That's 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 the feeling you have when you get signed out that you're like, well, we're 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 waiting we're, for this we're at exchange level. We're, we're, we're waiting we're, for the next level. And you're like, yeah. how or convenient. This 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 <laughs> yeah. When you get sign out, I, I think the okay. This is this is me sharing a little bit some of my egotistic uh, mm. tendencies, but and selfish tendencies. But the question always comes up: When do you fall in the baby that needs an exchange? Right. So when mm. when you hear at two p.m. that there's a baby at exchange level, you're like, all right. By the time I get there, hopefully, you know, like either yeah. the belly is down or the exchange is on the way. But when you start sign out and the team tells you, oh, we're waiting for that baby that the pediatrician called. The belly was twenty three in the that's office. Right. You're like, that's all me. That's it. Like you know, the shift is done. You. <laughs> You put your it's laptop mine. back in the bag and you're like, that's, that's going to be my evening tonight. It's going to be a long night. 
Yeah. But that's why the follow-up, you know, that's not a silly question. Like, how do we follow these kids up um, safely and effectively so we have less babies being readmitted um, and less babies, like, you know, on the, you know, batter up for, for a potential exchange. And there were, and there were, there were uh, groups, I want to say out of Duke, that were doing genetic studies on the babies that developed yes. uh, severe. Yeah, there is, there is a bind panel that can yeah. be sent for babies have who have kind of out of unexpected hyperbilirubinemia or prolonged hyperbilirubinemia. Daphna just walked away from the microphone. <laughs> anyway that's all we have today (laughs) all right Daphna Uh, thank you very much guys Um, and thank you for bearing with us this week all the episodes came out late but that's okay they came out that's what matters join us this Sunday for a fantastic interview with the amazing Dr. Annie Janvier Um, it's just 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 listen to this one Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. take care do not miss. Nope. <laughs> Bye, buddy. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nicupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.